and welcome to the Happy Baby Podcast. The Happy Baby Podcast is hosted by Frank Kelleher. Frank is one of the best-known paediatric osteopaths in Ireland. Over the last 20 years, he has helped well over 10,000 families with some of the most common issues that can challenge babies and children. The Happy Baby Podcast is all about providing information for parents on the common issues that can affect their baby or child, and more importantly, where to get help. Our aim is to provide parents with good, practical, professional information to help them navigate their little one's health needs more effectively. This podcast is not, however, intended as a substitute for medical diagnosis or treatment from a qualified health professional. If you have any concerns about your child, you should contact the appropriate health professional. In today's episode, Frank talks to Dr. Justin Roach and Kate Roach from the National Tongue Tie Centre in Knocklofty, County Tipperary. Justin and Kate are so passionate about providing the best possible care for the babies and children who attend their clinic. This is a fascinating insight into the importance of a holistic approach to tongue tie treatment. A must listen to episode if your baby has had a tongue tie done or you suspect your baby may have a tongue tie. This episode is a little longer than our previous episodes, but I promise it is well worth the extra time. Please feel free to share this podcast episode with anyone you think would be interested. The more people we reach with this information, the more babies can be helped. So let's get started. So good morning, and um, we're delighted to be speaking to Dr. Justin Roach and to Kate Roach in the beautiful National Tongue Tie Centre. So we drove up this morning on a sunny morning, and then we're delighted to um, have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you both today, talk about the subject of tongue tie. And first of all, what I'd like to ask you is just introduce yourselves, who you are and what your backgrounds and stuff like that. So just let me start with you. Cool. Well, I'm Justin Roach. I'm a consultant paediatrician. I've uh, worked, I suppose, in a number of different places over the over the years like the Met. But uh, over the last 13 years, have been working in Clonmel in the uh, the hospital there as community paediatrician and general paediatrician. And then um, we started a tongue-tie clinic initially in the hospital. Um, that grew and grew and grew. Um, and eventually, uh, five years ago, we moved out here to the National Tongue Tie Centre. Um, I suppose it's, it's enabled us to develop a dedicated centre. We've expanded the team, brought in more uh, different therapy elements and that um, to, to build the team and, and what we have today, which I think is where we're, we're offering, uh, I suppose, as, as best we can, the highest possible care to the families that we're looking after. Great, thank you for that. And Kate? Um, so I'm Kate Roach, I'm a physiotherapist, um, and over the years I've done further training in craniosacrotherapy, um, in my functional therapy, infant feeding, and I'm also a lactation consultant. Um, and I suppose my role very much is looking at the function and looking at how we can offer very much a holistic care to the, the children and babies who come here. Very good. And just bringing it on a little bit, t- talk to me about what tongue tie is and what are the basics. Okay. So, um, I mean, a, a tongue tie, most of us have got a tongue frenulum. And basically what a tongue frenulum is, is a connection from the undersurface of the tongue to the floor of the mouth. 
And when that connection or that piece of skin becomes short, tight and inelastic, what that will do then is restrict the movement of the tongue and that can then have an impact on function. So that's when that tongue frenulum basically becomes a tongue tie. Um, so it's, it's the fact that the, the child or adult can no longer use the tongue or have the movements that they need in order to achieve normal function. That it's, you know, that restriction is what makes that a tongue tie. And obviously I would see kids who come into my clinic or babies who attend the clinic who would have digestive issues associated one of the key factors could be a tongue tie what what are the signs or even for you Kate what what happens in the digestive system what are the consequences of having a tongue tie I suppose you know we will always try and find a way to achieve function the problem is we will achieve that function through abnormal compensatory movement patterns and it's often those compensations that give us the problem for example if you can't elevate your tongue you can't create um, an effective vacuum to achieve feeding through suction so instead what we do is um, a baby will um, overuse the jaw and compensate through mechanical means the upper lip which is just meant to be a seal create a seal then becomes um, pulled in to make achieve that mechanical compensation and then you're not making a seal so then you're doing a lot of air swallowing you often as well with the tongue is meant to cup and when you cup the tongue you can moderate flow of milk this doesn't happen when you don't have that movement especially at the back of the tongue and so what you do then the milk is hitting the back of the mouth and you're doing very much gulping because you don't have control and that also leads to a lot of air swallowing yeah, and that would be something, yeah, that, that that I would see where I'll ask very specific questions about gulping or even the baby gasping when they're drinking or even choking or spluttering, either through breastfeeding or even bottle feeding, and are even leaking the milk out of the sides of their mouth as well. So are those the sort of consequences of poor functions? Absolutely. And, if, you know, if milk is leaking out, that's the same space air is getting in okay um it's it actually takes quite a lot of um coordination to achieve your suck swallow breathe pattern that gets thrown off yeah. course yeah um and then we'd have i suppose you know so some babies won't won't take the breathing pause that they need so really babies should be taking four to six cycles of suck swallow breathe then having a breathing break so that's usually just two to four breaths and then they'll go back in on another cycle many of the babies that we see particularly when they're being bottle fed will tend to feed and feed and feed and feed and feed. And then it's only when they can't fit that breathing in, you get the cost to choke the splutter because they've, they've lost that coordination between the swallow and the breathe. Um, so, and the problem like Kate was describing there is that as that's coming, they tend to be much more gulpy with the feeding. And that's very much like any of us as an adult to drink down a pint of water in one go. Okay. So if you take that water down in one go, you can need it, or for most of the time, as you put the glass back down, you've nearly got that burp coming back. Well, that's how much extra air you're swallowing compared to if you sip that same pint of water. So if you've got that nice pace regularity, then you're, you, know, you will always take a small amount of air. You cannot eat or drink without swallowing some air, but it's that excessive air that you're getting. And then that air in itself then creates a lot of the problem. So yeah. they'll burp more, they can have more reflux because they're burping more or... For a lot of the babies that we would see, most of that air is heading south. Mm. 
And the problem then is that their babies who then experience the equivalent of trap wind, right. which I believe that tends to get labelled as colic. Um, and then the other issue that many of those babies have is they're then often straining to pass that wind because they fairly quickly rumble. Well, if I can, if I can pass that wind out the bottom end, that I get relief. And so they're often straining to get that relief before the wind is ready to be passed. Absolutely. And so, I would see that. So what mums will say to me is, my baby's straining an awful lot. They're grunting and groaning when you lie them down in their sleep. They're trying to pass wind. And I agree with you that it can be mistaken for colic. And it's just that wind that has transitioned through the digestive tract into the lower intestine. And the baby is trying to pass it, as you said, to try and relieve it. Yeah, absolutely. I think another big thing is um, is actually overfeeding. Okay. So a lot, often people will say, oh, my baby's pushing on weight. So therefore, we don't have a problem. Okay. But the problem is, if you're gulping and feeding very quickly, you're not giving time for the stomach to tell the brain that you've reached 30. So the baby wants to keep feeding. They also haven't had enough time to satisfy that need to suck. And then a baby can't differentiate between a hunger pain, a windy pain, a distended, overfull tummy pain. And so then they're wanting to return to the breast, return to the bottle, um, and keep exacerbating the problem. Same as if you're having reflux symptoms, you actually want the milk right. to achieve that cooling. And so you get into this cycle of um, feeding, crying, feeding, spitting up. And, you know, it's very yeah, difficult it's, to, yeah, to the, break that. The, the feeding that's giving you relief yes, is also what's actually, fueling the yeah. fire that requires yeah. the relief. So, you know, these parents are on these awful cycles. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. often because the baby appears to be thriving putting on weight it's often not recognized okay yeah i would agree with that principle because weight gain obviously is something you measure as a pediatrician a baby by but there are lots of other factors that are so important as well yeah Yeah, absolutely and i think that we that often gets missed do you mean so people aren't looking at what has it taken to get that baby to gain that weight so you know sometimes it's like we're describing here there's the overfeeding cycle so that they're and they're getting sick or just unsettled because of it. Um, other babies may gain adequate weight, but what people aren't looking at is it's taking half hourly, hourly, hour and a half feeds yes. in order to achieve that. So they're doing lots of very small feeds, tiring, yes, and then coming back to finish that feed. So they're getting their total volume in over the day, yes, but it's taking a lot and often round the clock as well, isn't it? And that's because of that inefficiency of feeding. So if you're um, having to compensate mechanically in order to feed, you're having to use a lot of tension patterns um, and you're expending a lot more energy. So you'd often find these are babies who are tiring and falling asleep, breast to the bottle. Um, And again, every time they then get put down, they're then disturbing because they're still hungry. Yes. Coming, returning to the breast or the bottle to fall asleep again. So they're in... Again, a, a cycle, cycle it's yeah. a, different, I mean, a different pattern. The analogy we'd often use is it's a bit like trying to pump a car tyre with a travel pump from a bicycle. So it works, yes. it does the job, but it's not the right tool for the job. Yes. So therefore, you've got two ways of solving that. You either pump long and slow, and the feeds effectively go on forever, yes. or you have short little bursts, you tire the muscles, you need a break for a minute and then you come back and have another burst. So that's the baby then that does these short, very frequent feeds. So, you know, the, the baby is doing their best to compensate, but because they don't have the right tool for the job or, you know, their tongue isn't able to do the, 
the, the job in the way it needs to, they're they're having these compensations. So that you know that would explain some of the patterns that then we would see with babies with tongue tie. So like that's really good information. So what are the the sort of the things that mums and dads should be looking for when their babies are feeding? You've mentioned some of them already. Really, things to look out for. If we're looking at breastfeeding, we're looking at the baby who fatigues very quickly. Okay. We're looking at the baby who's clicking at the breast. We're looking at um, nipple trauma. Okay. So if a baby can't achieve a deep latch or they can't maintain that latch, they're going to be um, and and having to use compression. That's the big thing. They're using compression instead of suction, okay. and that's that's causing your your nipple trauma. Yeah, and then similarly for for babies who are bottle feeding, um, we may see that coughing, choking, gagging that we see. They may um, take two or three ounces, and then they're tired. They they won't take any more, or they're refusing or pushing away the bottle. But then they're coming back twenty minutes, half an hour later to have a feed again. Um, dribbling, clicking again. They're all signs they're losing seal. Obviously, that the wind and colic is reflux type symptoms that we were describing earlier. Sometimes they will have issues with weight gain, but um, weight gain, I personally for me, is not a good marker for a problem tongue tie wise. You know what I mean? So because of that great propensity that we have for adaptation, you know, the one thing baby has to do is take adequate feed in in order to grow. So they will do their best to achieve that. So you know, and if they're managing that, they will grow. But it, like I say, it's looking at what it's taking in order to get that feed volume in. So, the amount of effort. So, yeah. yeah. You know, so there will be a small percentage of babies who are struggling to gain weight. But most of the babies that we will see are either gaining you know, reasonably good weight and sometimes they may gain excessive weight yeah. if they have those colic and reflux type symptoms. There's also, I suppose, some a little bit more subtle things you could notice. For example, the baby who feeds very differently on one breast to the other. Yes. The baby who um, turns their head persistently one way. Um, you know, one of the things I think happens is babies are going to be restricted those last few weeks in utero. Yes. And then when they're born, they're meant to kind of shrug off that fetal restriction and loosen up. But if you've got a baby who's having to work harder to feed and they're tensing, yes. that... Um, loosening doesn't happen and then we get a persistent either head preference tightening you know feeding very differently side to side um these are the things i see clinically in my practice so i see sort of the beginnings of almost a torticollis which is a compensatory in the neck muscle tension extending of the cranial base not getting the proper bucket handle movement of the lower rib cage because the body is tense and even a hitching on the pelvis on the same side as the head preference, so that myofact, that deep myofascial tension, is actually occurring in the body, just yeah. as you described it. Yeah. Absolutely, and I think the important question to ask is why. You know, why have we got this restriction? Yeah. And look at what's causing or, you know, keeping it going. Yeah, absolutely. And and that often comes back to what an infant's doing for most of the day. Feeding. feeding and if they're feeding ineffectually and compensating we can we can treat the tension but if we've not treated the root cause yeah. we're not going to get carryover therapy because those tension patterns are the crutches the infant is using to feed so if you know these are sort of the, the things we need to be looking at 
And similarly, the other bit, when, when you look at the tongue, yes. the tongue isn't just a single muscle or a single entity. It's eight pairs of muscles yes. that are working together as a unit. So four of those pairs of muscles are within the tongue itself, but four of those muscles come out. So they'll attach onto the palate, onto the base of the skull, down onto the hyoid bone, right. and then on the inside of the jaw. So if you've got an imbalance there from, so like we're talking about the torticollis with yes. the head turn, that can also have an impact on tongue function as well. Yes. So, And the tricky bit then is trying to tease out, well, which is the chicken and the egg there? So is the neck tightness affecting tongue function? But is that there because they have a tongue tie? And so that then that neck tightness is further impounding or impacting on that tongue function, which is why I suppose over the years that I've been at this, I've gone from thinking that the tongue tie surgery is the fix for a tongue tie problem, whereas actually what I realize now is that you've you've got to change that function. Yeah. The tongue tie surgery merely changes the structure in the mouth. So you're releasing that skin and fascial tension that's there. But then what you've got to get is you've got to get that tongue moving and get it doing and working correctly. So that's where the likes of yourself and Kate and yes. the work that yeah. you're doing really makes a difference yeah. then. Yeah, function. And structure have to go hand in hand. We cannot look. We cannot look at one in isolation. Mm -hmm. So you know we can do all the therapy in the world, but if there is a structural restriction, we're not going to achieve normal function, Mm -hmm. and we're going to keep needing tension. Yeah. In the same way, as I just said, we can free up a structural restriction, but if we don't work at function, we're not going to change those movement patterns. You're not going to. achieve any functional change you've got to do them um together and and you've also got to have the right feeding support because again that is what baby is working hardest at throughout the day so you've got to make sure you've got the right feeding advice and support as well as looking at your your therapy and looking at um your your structure yeah and sometimes i think that's where um you know for for many of the families we see, obviously, they're breastfeeding. Yes. So, and um, I think we, with breastfeeding, your parents can see that need to change. Mum's often getting that experience that she can feel the baby's feeding differently. You know, so there's, I suppose there's, there's more observation points that you've got that you can see where that change is happening and, and benefits that are coming from that change happening. Some of the families that we'd see they're, where they've been exclusively bottle feeding, and it, the challenge is getting them to go through that period of change, which sometimes is harder work than even the problems they were having prior to tongue tie surgery, because that tongue can now move in a different range. So that's a bit like taking a plaster cast off a broken leg and expecting to march up, up sleeve them on the same day. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, for, you know, we can see that and know that that's not going to happen. But the problem when parents are expecting that tongue tie surgery is going to be the fix and that it's all just going to come good. And then actually what happens is that baby is moving better, but they're tiring more quickly. So they have either got to feed more often or sometimes they're then they're getting upset because they can take two ounces well. But when they're hitting the third and fourth ounce that they need to fill themselves, they're almost getting too tired yes. because of that change. So it's you're managing those expectations um, is also or can be a challenge as well. Do you mean? And but that's a very good point to make as well is that it is about the rehabilitation yeah. post surgery as well as you said. 
and the plastocast analogy is, is perfect. You don't suddenly have a perfect muscular structure when you take a cast off a broken leg. It has to be rehabilitated in the same way with the myofascial work. Yeah. And I think with the feeding support, you know, with breastfeeders, you have the support of IBCLCs yes. and the breastfeeding groups. Bottle feeding babies often don't have the same support. Mm-hmm. Um because where do you go to for bottle feeding support? You know, yes. it's you know, and I think there's a great expectation that we just have that knowledge built into us as a society. But many of the families that are coming to us, you know, the information that they've been given as the way to feed and the right technique is isn't actually going to set that baby up well. Do you mean so? This idea of laying a baby nearly onto their back putting the bottle in almost vertically above their head and then expecting them to be able to drink and control how they're swallowing. You know, none of us would lay on our back, have somebody else squeeze a sports bottle of water for us <laughs> in order for us to drink. Yes. And although that's not what parents are trying to do, but it's, it can be a very similar thing, particularly if you've got a, a bottle that has quite a fast flow sheet. Um, so I suppose we would spend a lot of time getting parents sitting babies up, bringing bottles horizontally, angling bottles down. Yeah, so we're getting that pace feeding stuff going for them. I think what's also hard for bottle feeders is there are numbers on the bottle. So you then get a fixed idea of how much babies should have. Um, And what we really want parents to learn is responsive feeding, whether they're breastfed, bottle fed, combination fed, is to look at the baby read the baby's cues and respond accordingly. And when you've got in your head, I need to get so many ounces in, in a day, and you can see the numbers on the bottle, you just want to get that last ounce in. And I think that's one of the huge benefits of breastfeeding is you don't have a gauge, so you look at the baby. You look at the baby more. Yeah. And, And if we could, you know, responsive feeding is, I think, is huge because we don't all eat the same at each meal. You know, you develop an appetite. Yeah, yeah. and and you. This is the time as well where babies need to learn their satiety cues. They need to learn the pattern. I'm hungry. I eat. I feel better. Yeah. And I know when I've had enough. Whereas when we're overriding that response all the time, they're not learning those patterns that yeah. carry into yeah. later life. In terms of just looking at the respiratory system now as an entity, so um, with the tongue tie and the palatine bone mechanism, you've obviously done say, craniosacral work. So the importance of the vomer moving forward in the face and the facial bones opening and the nostril integrity widening. How does tongue tie affect that? Because when kiddies come into me very often, they're very congested. Um, I'll ask mum a question when baby is sleeping, is their mouth open or closed? And very often they'd say, oh yeah, baby's mouth is open. What, what, what's the consequences of a tongue-tie on the palatine bones and obviously the... Okay. Well, I mean, the, one of the things we're very big at trying to get parents to do post-tongue-tie surgery or for, you know, for where we're seeing children who we feel they have good tongue function but they're not utilising their function well, is about trying to get that tongue to palate. Okay. There's, I mean, there's several benefits to it. Um, if, obviously, once your tongue is, is fully engaged onto the palate, you can no longer breathe through your mouth. You've actually sealed the mouth. So that means now you're nasal breathing. Yes. Our nose is designed 
for breathing. Yeah, so it'll warm and humidify the air. It can filter, and also we've from our sinuses we produce nitric oxide. So that works as an antibacterial agent. So there's a whole load of immune defense things happening there that you do not get from breathing through your mouth. Um, the other thing that can happen is if you've got the tongue to palate up to the palate, it's supporting that soft palate. Yes. So that can no longer vibrate. So you're not making these snoring noises that we think are cute in children or are very annoying in adults, but in children we seem to think it's cute. But you know, and the problem there is that those children then are often getting disturbed sleep. Um, and you then the other bit like you're alluding to earlier is is if you can get the tongue to the palate. That then is is what the the palate of the upper jaw is growing around from a structural perspective. So that's creating width. So width for the upper jaw is also width for the nasal airway. Yeah. Um, and if you if you grow that upper jaw forwards and wider, you're also creating space for your tongue as you're growing. So and what that will do over time is give you airway space. Okay. So um, you know now. We know these things by association. Unfortunately, I don't believe that we've got quite to the point where we can prove causality from a research perspective. But it's not a massive leap to think if you've got, if your upper jaw is growing around your tongue and you're creating, let's say, width, and you've got a shallow arch to that upper jaw, that that is going to be much better than a narrow, high-arched palate and when you see people trying to put the tongue they just isn't the space for it to go certainly a number of the adults that we are seeing where they're having sleep and airway issues some of whom are on uh, CPAP machines and things like that because of obstructive sleep apnea they've often got high arch narrow palates just mean so and we're if we can get these children right yes. whilst they're growing I can't, I can't tell you for sure we're going to save them this, but it makes a lot of sense. If you've got space for your tongue, you've grown the airway, you've got good habits in terms of breathing, that has to be better for us than um, oral breathing. You know, I mean, our mouth is, has two functions, doesn't it, Kate? Feeding and, feeding and talking. So, and the problem is when you have a low tongue, it's very hard to get lip seal as well. And, you know, your, your tongue is your palate expander. So if you can get the tongue up um, at rest, especially during sleep, you're going to get a lot of positive influence on, on the growth of that jaw. But also if you get your tongue up during correct swallow, you're going to get a large lateral force um, on, on that jaw. And I think if you can get mouth closure, the feeling then as well is, is you've got upper and lower jaw engaged. That means that your dentition is going to integrate with one another. So you're also your chances of having a malocclusion are also much reduced because they're growing together as a set rather than when your mouth is open, your upper jaw is growing, your lower jaw is growing, and then we hope that we can mesh them together. Yeah. But you haven't built the jigsaw, yeah. you know, as, as they've grown together. And, and as well, you know, the way that tongue tie attaches within the fascia of the body, it pulls the lower jaw back into a retracted yes, position. And if you've got a retracted jaw, it looks like you've got an, an overbite. Um, if you then, you know as part of orthodontic treatment, retract those teeth further, again, you're all encroaching on your your airway space. And and the other big um, advantage for the tongue to the palate is also part of your autonomic nervous system engagement, which is um, a really big thing. It's like plugging a charger in. It tells the brain, I think, below this level is okay, and that's really important in 
um, settling and, and soothing for, for children. Talk to me a little bit about the treatment in the clinic and the process for you guys. No. Okay. Like um, you come in on a Monday morning, baby presents. What, what happened? Okay. So, um, you know, what, what most families will have done is, well, some of them may have run already and spoken to one of our receptionists. Okay. So they would often talk them through a lot of what we've kind of explained now. Um, some families will book directly online. But what that then will do is that will trigger an email that goes out to the family with information about what will happen during the, the clinic visit. There'll be um, a links to a number of videos as well. And then there's um, this question, three questionnaires that they will get. So one that's giving us background information around the baby, the family, and, and how feeding is going. Um, and then two um, validated questionnaires that look at reflux symptoms and look at breastfeeding um, efficacy. And um, the, the day they'll turn up uh, to clinic, they'll be greeted by one of our receptionists um, and brought through into their own um, clinic room. I would see them initially for a consultation, examine the baby, determine whether or not I feel that they have restrictions. Obviously, most of the families that come in with us are occurring around tongue tie, but we will also look at lip and buckle, frenulums as well, um, and look at palate shape. Um, and those things while they're there. If those babies require surgery and the families are ready, having prepared with all that information that we've already given them, we then proceed to do um, a tongue-tie division. The tool I use now is a, a CO2 laser. So the beauty of that for me is it gives me great control okay. with the surgery I'm doing. Um, we will get little to no bleeding. So the visual field that I've got through the entire procedure is clear. Um, and it, it's the studies that have been done on an animal model basis would say to, would tell us that that creates less of an inflammatory response in terms of in the healing process afterwards. Um, once we've done that, um, we bring baby back to mom and or dad, and then um, I would hand over to one of our lactation consultants. They would then take the baby through the, the kind of feeding and look at what things need to be changed in terms of latch and position go through pace bottle feeding with them for families that are using bottle feeding at all um, and, and basically work out an initial plan for them. They would also give them a first dose of analgesia. So for the young babies, we'd use just paracetamol. For the um, slightly bigger babies, we'd also use Nurofen as well. The rationale behind that is we want to keep these babies as comfortable as we can. If we can stay ahead of any soreness, and I... Well, we believe that, that that soreness is far more likely to come from muscle ache, okay. from working and using that tongue differently from the, than from the surgery itself. Um, so what we don't want them to do is change how they're feeding and then get sore and go, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going back to what I always did because yes. that was better. Just me. Yes. So if we, if we manage to get them transitioning, we want to keep them on that path rather than go back to the old familiar way because we'll lose a lot of the benefit that yeah. we were gaining um, there. Um, and then the lactation consultants then would hand over to Kate and then Kate would go through her, her bits with them. So what we want to do is what I'm doing is, first of all, we're showing the parents how to manage that surgical site okay. so that we get optimal healing. Um, so if we can keep that surgical site open, it's going to heal by growing new skin cells across and we're then going to maintain 
the movement that we've achieved through surgery. We don't want to um, risk either reattachment or a suboptimal um, healing pattern. We then need to look at working on baby stamina because, again, they've suddenly got a new movement um, and they're going to fatigue. You know, if we went to the gym one day, um, we might think we were great doing a new exercise class. If we're still doing it by the next evening, um, we're going to be struggling. So we've got to... It's always going to be a process um, when you're introducing completely new movement. So we and what we need to do is show parents things they can be doing with their baby at home because we're seeing them for a period of time. Yeah. They're with them um, all the time. So we're trying to empower parents, give them as much information and guidance as possible so there's things they can be changing in um what they do with the baby in terms of feeding, handling, um, and then some specific exercises. So we would get them doing um, some work to achieve relaxation because we're not going to get good, efficient new tongue movement if everything around it is is tense. So we give them some um, massage type exercises to to achieve relaxation. We give them some specific. Um, mouth work working on suck because we've got to change that suck pattern so we want to use make sure the baby's using the new movement and using it in the most effective way and we get them to do this ahead of feeds so that uh, the feed can then re um, reinforce that we then um, give them some um, whole body exercises so for example rolling tummy time etc so that they can be helping to loosen up yeah. those patterns of, of tightness and they can be working on their their stamina as well for so for example one of the things we do is is rolling in in and out of tummy time during nappy changes so by showing them how to um roll we're achieving unwinding in their trunk so if we want to free up the had a neck we need to start centrally and getting them to do this getting them doing active extension work we're working on the muscles that support the suck that's going to help with that that stamina during feeding um and then um what i'm also trying to do is identify any particular issues that that baby may have and then at that point we try to um suggest referral on to therapists in the local area so that they have the ongoing support because you know, and very much emphasising this is a process. Yeah. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. Baby has been um, establishing those suck-swallow patterns since somewhere between 17 and 22 weeks gestation. Yes. So even if we're fortunate enough to see a baby in those very early weeks, they still have established habits and tension patterns that we need to address. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so very comprehensive, really, in terms of the approach. Uh, which is the key, isn't it? And obviously, I know you refer babies from the from the area who come back to see me, and I work on their myofascial system then just to create what I, what I would say is midline in the body, where you have symmetry from the midline, really, where the baby now has, as you said, Kate, less tension through the deep fascia because of the tongue. So now things start to let go more easily. So you can you can get the posture of the neck in a very much more neutral position, and then. You can work on the ribcage movement and restore, you know, proper elevation and, and you know, that midlining coming back as well. And look, even look further down into the thoracolumbar fascia as it attaches 
to sort of the pelvis and get the pelvis anomaly if there's a little bit of hitching, get clear all those things. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and what we're looking at, you know, obviously we're looking at infant feeding yes. because that's often what is the presenting issue. But we're also trying to look beyond that. We're trying to set these babies up for a lifetime. If we can get them breathing correctly, feeding correctly, get um, work with growth to get optimal growth. Yeah. These are things that are going to have long-term impacts and it's trying to I suppose share that idea with parents that you know they may have only had a problem for a very short time and we may now be suggesting that you you keep working with a therapist or a lactation servant for a number of weeks or even months but that's because we're setting them up for life we are looking at infant feeding but we're also looking beyond infant feeding because I suppose through treating children and adults we now see how the consequences affect the lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And talk to me a little bit about older kids, then like six months to five years old, because you see quite a cross-section. Are there, are there different issues? Obviously, the tongue, is, tongue tie is more established at that point in time, and the deep fascia tissue is probably anchored a bit more. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of how they're presenting, some of those children are still presenting with feeding problems. Okay. But those feeding problems have often moved on because, you know, they're, they're obviously no longer taking large volumes of milk or fluids. But um, you know, some of them, their, their issues may be that they're now uh, struggling with solids or okay. they're very particular about foods that they will and won't eat. So you know, some of the children that we've, we've met have, you know, have a, a fairly limited range of what they would describe as safe foods. Well, that's what the kind of name has become within the family. Um, and it's interesting that... That theme of safe foods, you know, where where that has has happened in a family, you know, you'll see that in another family. They they seem to call them safe foods. Yes, and it's and it's the things that we find uh, that keep coming up is certain textures. So things children will struggle with are things like mashed potato. So anything that's claggy, if you can't clear the palate in with the sweep of your tongue, yes. that's going to build up and stay there, and then that gives the child the feeling of of gagging. Um, the other things they'll often find is they're fine with things like a cracker because they can feel very distinctly where it is in the mouth because we've got um, a tongue that can't clear the mouth effectively. So children want to know where the food is, but you give them mixed consistencies. So the the dinner that has a gravy but also has you know pieces of meat or or whatever in and they can't cope with that because they they don't have the tongue function to safely mobilize it Um, and once you've had a very negative association with food and we're choking that takes quite a long time to get over you know children quickly make associations and then often won't return to certain foods or food groups yeah Okay. And what about speech development then? Again, there's, there's a number of children that we would see. Yeah. I suppose there's, there's a multitude of, of reasons for, for children having speech problems, um, you know, of which obviously tongue, tongue tie is only one. Um, I suppose a, a pattern that we would often see with these children is that their understanding uh, or the level they have of understanding of language far exceeds that of their spoken ability or that or the other one is clarity of speech um sometimes clarity of speech doesn't really hit a problem until they become quite excited do you mean so as they're as they're 
the speed of speech gets faster, that's when they run into trouble. So, and they're often not aware of it. So they will come in fierce excited about something and they'll say something to the parents and the parents are like, I have no idea what he just said. And yet, if he came back two minutes later and said the same thing, you know, when they're calm and they've got their normal rhythm of speech, it's very clear. So, you know, there can be subtle changes sometimes. It's not that they're just not talking yes. or that they just have a list. You know, there's a number of it's different things. It's the fluidity of speech. It's about moving from one syllable to another or often they'll fatigue. So speech goes off at the end of the day because they're pulling against a restriction okay. um, or they'll find certain sounds difficult and they'll use replacement, you know, or just avoid. You, you, you'll find children will give very short sentences. They, they, they'll, they'll just skip words out so they're not having to do that um, the same level of enunciation or be mumbly. So if you've got to achieve your tongue to the palate for a certain sound and you can't reach it, you're going to have your mouth more closed. Yes. And yet if you want to project or make yourself heard, you need to open your mouth wider. So these are the children that mumble because in order to achieve correct yes. placement, you can't do that with the level of opening that, okay. that you have. I mean, there, there are a number of different um, issues or, or presentations that we would see around sleep. So, you know, for some children, it's snoring, yes. which it just isn't normal. You know, children aren't meant to snore. Uh, they don't form a large portion of the children that we would see. Usually what we would see much more of is movement. So these are, are the children where it looks like there's a tsunami going on in the bed, do you mean there's a whirlwind? The sheets are always turned up. They fall out of bed repeatedly. Do you mean, or you go in, you know, just after they've sat to sleep and they're in one position, you go and look at them as you're heading off to bed and they're upside down the other end of the bed doing any these things. So there's a lot of movement. Um, children tend not to get things like obstructive sleep apnea. What they tend to get is sleep arousal. And that, that can be associated with a lot of these movements then that we're seeing with them. So they're repositioning themselves okay. in order to correct airway and, and those kind of things that are going on. Another position you'd see a lot or have a lot described, isn't it? Yeah, is there, that's where they're lying on their front with the bottom in the air. That's a red flag for airway obstruction or the child who would have their head extended and rotated. And what they're doing is they're opening up their airway. Yeah. 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 Same as we Teeth do in the first aid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's it's yeah. that sniffing the morning air position. Yeah. So if your child is, is adopting that as their normal sleep position once they're into deep sleep, again, now, we can't say for everybody that's the case, but if you're seeing that as that's their typical pattern, you know, you'd have to wander around airway issues yeah, there. Issues. And those children will sometimes then wake tired. Just means yes. they, they've clocked the hours, but they haven't clocked the quality or that refreshing sleep. And so when they do wake, they're the ones that are hard to get going, and yet they've been in bed for hours and hours. Yeah, and also you'd see with adults who have sleep issues, um, would present with drowsiness, sleepiness, tiredness. Children do tend to do the opposite. That's when you see your concentration issues. And some of your hyperactivity, they kind of need to yeah. keep themselves getting attention, maintaining attention, you know, or being flighty, they'll move from one thing to another. Yes. So, you know, a lot of what the kind of ADHD type symptoms. Now, again, 
sleep doesn't account for ADHD, but you can see very similar parallels in children that aren't sleeping well. If you don't get good quality sleep, that's going to affect your daytime function. And the airways, keeping those airways open is important, and it's going to take an impact in that. Yes. And you'd see things like teeth grinding. So teeth grinding is a way of splinting the airway. Grunting in a baby can be a way of splinting an airway. So these are the other things you'd just have an awareness of. And you can often see in their teeth, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the children we would see where they have, you know, their teeth look nice, but they are absolutely perfectly flat. But they're perfectly flat because they've been grinding them against one another. And it does, you know, you're you're bringing tone into the jaw and you're pushing that jaw forwards. Do you know what I mean? So that's a lot of what that bruxism or you know, teeth grinding, that seems to be the purpose for that. Is okay. tongue tie hereditary? In other um, words, that's a okay. question I'm often asked because... I do a little test with the parents mm-hmm. where I get them to close their mouth and tell me where your tongue is resting. Mm-hmm. And I've had parents with their baby who I've seen has a tongue tie. And dad is there and he goes, yeah, mine is on the floor of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's not on my palate. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I'd often um, ask a parent to show a child what to do with a particular movement. Because yeah. at the moment, I'm not able to take my mask off in clinic. And you ask the parents to demonstrate to the child and... They can't do it. <laughs> so, and you're saying some of them, the parent is worse than the child in terms of their ability to do some of those movements. So, um, you know, do we have research to show yes. us that tongue tie is inherited? There are some limited studies out okay. there. Um, based on what we would see, is it inherited? It has to be. Do you know what I mean? Um, I know one of the, the kind of... Um, criticism shall we say that sometimes gets leveled at those of us that are doing tongue tie surgery is you have to be doing too much of this because if we look back 10 or 20 years ago you know your rates now are four to ten times what we were doing then Mm. and it's like okay so to my mind the way that we need to look at this is we need to take a cross-section of the population who are 30 and who are 50 and possibly even 70 and examine them with some of the standardized assessment tools that we have now for tongue tie and see how many of them have the function. Because certainly, and yeah. like you're describing there, Frank, you know, we see every day that there are parents yes. who have the same problems or sometimes worse problems than their children have had, you know. But also I think the the issues were there, but they weren't recognized. So yes. we can look at our own our own family is a great case study, which is why we do tongue tie, because we had issues with our own children and that's how we got into it. But then I go back and we look at um, where we were at. So, for example, Justin had colic. You know, I couldn't breastfeed. You know, um, we then go back to the next generation. We look at the our grandparents and there were issues with sleep, with teeth, with jaws. We then go back. Um, my dad does great historical photographs okay and we're looking at our great-grandparents and we can see the smudges under the eyes the receded jaw the all those things mm-hmm. they were there but they were not recognized so the as tools weren't available no absolutely but you can see the problems and running through families and every day parents will say to you well no, well, no that's fine because his dad snores oh that's fine because or you know my family we needed surgery to bring our jaws forwards you know, and so we've normalised a lot of things, but also, you know, I think the problems were there, and you know, we were looking 
um, just watching a concert the other day, and there was a camera scanned the crowds. Yes. And you can see the mouth breezes, the receded jaw, the setting of the ears. The, you know, it, it's just, it is there. But people aren't recognising it. We go into parents' evening, you know. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And oh, watching yeah. people talk. And once you've recognised it and seen it, you can't not see it. Okay. And even now, our, um, our eight-year-old came in one day and said to us, Tesco delivery driver's tongue-tied, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> because... You know, once you you're right, yeah, but, but I mean, it's not. Yeah. It's just not recognised. But the problems are there, and there are a lot of people with with issues with mm. speech, sleep, eating, TMJ problems, whatever you know. And I think even in the adult population um, in my area, when I used to treat adults many many years ago, this chronicity of back pain, neck pain, pelvis pain, the association with. I would think deep, te- deep fascial tension. Yeah. Will you use your tongue for talking, breathing, sleep, even eating all the time? It's very much a muscle we're using it's active, isn't it? all the time. Yeah. And if you're using it suboptimally, and even things like posture, mm. you know, if you've got um, something that's causing some restriction to your airway, you're going to automatically push your chin forward. Yeah. As soon as you move your chin forward, you've affected how your head aligns to your spine. Your, you know, and your head is very heavy. Yeah. If your head is even just a few degrees forward, that is all pulling on the base of your neck, and it, it you know, and it, so it continues. Yeah. And it's very interesting when we release adults; mm. they will tell us almost that there'll be a point, and they'll say, "Yeah, I can feel that," and it's the base of the neck. Oh, one yeah. lady could feel it, back of the leg. Yeah. You know, those tension oh, yeah. patterns. Like one person, one time. And the Kirsty, who's who's um, one of our healthcare assistants yes. that works with us, so she, you know, her role when we're doing surgery would basically be minding the patient. Yeah. So, um, and I just remember her saying to to this person one time, it's like, are you okay? And I went, yeah, yeah, I've just, I just feel this tightness just going behind my knees. Do you mean? But like she'd spotted is their eyes are kind of open wide, and like and that. But like I wouldn't have believed it. I've seen videos. You know, some of the guys in the states, a chap, um, an ENT surgeon called Sarush Sagi, has a number of surgeries with people describing their experience and how things changed even during or immediately after surgery for them. And you know, you've seen it, and you're kind of like, okay, that's a bit weird. Do you know what I mean? Because I still think it's a yeah. bit weird, like in that chat, but. But, you know, we've done surgery with people and they've told us that this is happening as we're releasing the fascia. And you can see sometimes there's one tiny little tight band okay. just left in underneath the skin. And as we come across with the laser and just release that, and they'd say there, they can, they can feel it. It's, you know, that's gone. Or when they're doing the movement that Kate would get them doing with their tongue yes. afterwards and saying, yeah, I can't, it's not coming back anymore. It's, you know, it's disappeared. Like, it's when you see that kind of stuff, and then sometimes with the babies, very similarly, I might say to the, you know, whoever's helping me, I just need to get this tiny bit here and then I'm happy we've got everything. And as you catch that, you just see the baby visibly relax. You know, it's just, it's kind of spooky, like a match. But, um, but there's obviously, I think, very similar things happening for that baby that it's just, you know, that tension that's held, it's just, it's just gone. suddenly gone. And parents will often say that when they come back. They say they just seem more... Comfortable in their body. Mm-hmm. There's just something about them. They're calmer. Mm-hmm. They're, um, 
They're just, able to relax, isn't it? Yeah, Almost, it's, it's that kind of thing, yeah. you know. And I think that's a combination of that letting go of tension and the autonomic nervous system engagement of the tongue. Very, very good. And what are your final thoughts now? And thank you so much for this. This has been enlightening, to be honest. What are your final thoughts? I think education. Education. Education, yeah, education, education. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose we need, we need more people doing, uh, I suppose, the kind of work that we're doing. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So getting that teamwork, that collaboration, moving from that surgery is the fix. Yeah, surgery is the facilitator. Okay. Do you know what I mean? The fix is absolutely in getting that change to happen. Do you know what I mean? And then and and undoing those tightnesses and tensions and things that, that got the baby to where they were, um, you know, and enabled them to survive. But we now need to get them onto the pathway they should have been on. Do you know what I mean? So those those bits, you know, um, you know, building teams and links and and I think the problem as well is if we um, identify tongue tie and treat it, but don't treat it correctly. That is what gives the whole tongue tie is a fad. Tongue tie, it's mismanagement. You know, there's a lot of tongue tie treatment, but if it's um, not done optimally, we've then got parents who are saying, "But I've had it treated, so it's now not an issue." Okay. And we're seeing children after tongue tie surgery who are presenting with problems, but because they think it's been addressed, the parents sort of said, well, that was dealt with. So I've been looking at lots of other different avenues. So if we're going to um, identify and treat tongue tie, we've got to do it um, at a very high level because if we don't get those outcomes, we don't get function. Yeah. And that's, that is multifactorial. You've got to get it healing correctly because a partially improved tongue tie is not going to give you the long-term results. It might get you over your initial feeding issue, but it's not going to give you all those other things that set you up for a lifetime. So it's, it's, it's almost like integrating the new movement in the tongue with the rest of the body, getting yeah. it fully integrated neurologically and, as you said, structurally and function, functionally. Isn't it really? Yeah. It's integrating that movement back into the, yeah. com- to the complete system. Yeah. Well, yeah. The neural pathways aren't there. Yeah. If you've had a movement inhibited, you have rerouted mm-hmm. the um, connections between the brain and the muscles. Yeah. And we have got to create those new pathways because you can't suddenly do something you've never been able to do. And that's what we're doing. And we've got to create a new normal. But to do that, you've got to be doing it enough, which is why... For example, like Justin said, how important pain relief is afterwards. So you can have a baby who feeds really nicely straight after surgery. If they're then sore day two and day three, they will revert because the thing that's going to inhibit movement the most is pain. That's pain. And you will go back. So you've rebooted the computer, you've got an opportunity for change, but you've lost that because the baby's reverted because it was more comfortable. So this is why you've got to get every piece of the jigsaw in and in order to get the outcome you want doing one piece of the jigsaw you won't see the result and i think that's what often has given a tongue tire a poor press it's not a quick fix yes. do you mean in the same way as you will not find an orthopedic surgeon in any country in the world who will tell you that his surgery will fix your knee replacement he'll send you to the physio 
Yes. Yeah, or she will send you to the physio. Yes. And they, it's it's the physio that gives you your function. It's yeah. the integration. Yeah. Yes, it's the, yeah. You know, you can get a new knee out of it, but if you don't move that knee well and you don't use that knee well, you will never gain the function that that new knee gave you or could have given you. Yeah. And, and, and when you do something first off, you've got the best chance of a good outcome. Yes. So we're seeing a lot of children now who have come from elsewhere, um, around the world, yeah. who have had two and three surgeries, okay. and then you're dealing with scar tissue. And we always say our, our most difficult patients are the ones who have had previous surgery because you've got to unpick and, you know, everything is more complicated. Yeah. And their, their adaptations are greater. Of course. Which means, so, you know, you're not working with... You know, with untreated tissue, you, yes, you've tissue that's healed on several occasions, yes, and and they, you know, their journey often has been difficult as well. So you've you've got that. Uh, well, there's a lot of family that. baggage that comes with yeah. it. You've got a lot of parents yeah. who, yeah. you know, they're not sleeping. You know, if you've got a family where they've had a baby who's crying all the time, or they're not sleeping, yes. and it affects the relationships with the other siblings. Of course uh, it does. It's it's you know, if you've got. Um, sorts of problems that these children are presenting with, be it sleeping, feeding, these are things that really upset family dynamics. Agreed. And you've got to look at the whole family as well in when you're treating that. And sometimes we won't treat a child, you know, the baby might be ready for surgery then, but if the family's not ready, again, you're not going to get the outcome. It's that same, you've got to take everything into consideration when you're... And sometimes that's a hard sell for families, you know, particularly when... You know, the message is surgery is is the solution, you know, so it's it's bringing them on that journey that they realize what I do doesn't doesn't fix it for them. Yeah, it enables that to happen. But there's a lot of work that they've got to do. Yes. And we're doing our best to give them that knowledge and that skill set so that it can happen. And where it's not working, they have to come back. Do you mean? And sometimes that for families means they're coming back on day four from yeah. Kevin. Okay. You know, and it's like, you know, and is that easy? No, it's not. No, Just mean, easy. but but sometimes we've got to look again and look at, well, is that healing going how we want it? Are we keeping that diamond open so that we're giving that, you know, in forcing the body to heal that by re-epithelialization, so secondary intention healing, rather than that diamond healing back onto itself, yes. which potentially will bring back a restriction at the base of the tongue which is exactly where the movement we need for feeding at the moment is. Yeah? You can get compensation. So if we build mum's supply up, if she's breastfeeding, she can compensate for that baby potentially because we've seen children come to us at two and three years of age with speech problems who had a tie to the tip of the tongue. And some of them breastfed without a bother. So you can have shocking function. Do you mean where yes. you know, somebody in the supermarket queue could diagnose that child's tongue tie? And yet they had no problems during infancy. But then when we've moved on, obviously they don't have the movement they need for speech because the tongue is tethered to the floor of the mouth. So it's only later on that those, those bits you know, catch up with you. And you, you, when you no longer have somebody else there who can compensate for you, I mean, it's only the function you've got that gives you your ability. Um, you know, that's where it can go wrong for you. So there's, there's loads of... of different kind of pathways and presentations and that. So it's, it's really complicated that way, which is, it's why as well, I think it's very hard to measure 
some of the changes that we're seeing and why it's really important to do what we're trying to give families, you know, that optimal outcome. Because, you know, when, when you're measuring something or the changes that you're looking for occur over a lifetime, how you isolate that it's how we did the tongue tie surgery and how well that healed that made the difference rather than other lifestyle choices and things. And some of them, one, they don't know that their other issues are related. So we've had more than, you know, a few families, they've come to us with speech problems. Okay. When they come back post-surgery, it's almost like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But they're sleeping now. The difference in our family, but they didn't know that was an issue. And that's not why they came to us. Yeah, and it's, or you can have an older child and they're like, oh yeah, they eat fine. And then when you show them, but have you noticed he's only eating on the right side of his mouth? Have you noticed he's swallowing um, big lumps and pushing big lumps down? He's not chewing them. Well, he does get tummy pain a lot, etc., etc. And they haven't made the connections. And it's only when, you know, I had that just the last week, child, an older child referred from an, um, an orthodontist yes. for dental issues. But when I watched how he was eating, then you could see why he has tummy pain, you know, gulping drinks. But again, these aren't things that as a parent you'd be aware of. Of course. And you wouldn't link it. So that's why we come back to our education and empowering parents. That's the key, isn't it? Education and and sending the information out. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Well, I want to thank you sincerely. Absolutely (laughs) fantastic today. Um, and we were delighted that we could come up and see the centre. I know you've invited us up before, but it's a beautiful place. Thank and um, thank you so much for your time. You're very really welcome. We're delighted so to have you. Okay. And it's, it's lovely for us to meet the people who are looking after our patients yeah. because they need that ongoing support. And, and we're lucky to have a network around the country of people we can say. And when, we, when we've met someone and we know someone, it's much easier to... Yeah, you got to them. They'll, yeah. they'll look after you. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks so much to Justin and Kate for this amazing insight into the work they do at the National Tongue Tie Centre. You can easily see why people travel from all over Europe to see them. If you would like more information about the National Tongue Tie Centre, their website is www.drjustinroach.com. And you can also follow them on Instagram at National Tongue Tie Centre. Until next time, goodbye.